I know what you're thinking. Dak's got a lot shorter. But, uh, yeah. Um, thank you, worship team. That is so awesome. I, I oftentimes forget what it's like to sit in the congregation and worship. It's so awesome just to be overwhelmed with worship, to hear you guys singing. Um, thank you, Trey. Thank you, team. I love playing with the Hazels there. It's like such an honor every time. Um, it feels weird, really weird, standing up here without a guitar. Uh, I feel like I need to either sing this entire sermon out for you guys or uh, talk in some weird rhythm or that I need to like imitate Dax, you know, like his walk, how he kind of bounces around like this a lot. <laughs> we call him Tigger for a reason. Um, no, but I'm, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to walk with you and learn with you in the gospel. Um, as many of you know, in June, I got engaged to my beautiful fiance. Thank you so much. Yeah, she is amazing. Currently working in a cafe in Oceanside, otherwise she'd be watching, but when she watches later, hi Maddie, I love you. Um, and so what this means is we're planning to get married in San Diego in January, uh, which means that I'll actually be moving exactly a month from today, which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> I told Dax I'd get booed, but not for that reason. Um, <laughs> So I'll actually be moving uh, September 1st will be my last day. And so with that, next week, next Sunday, August 8th, from 6 p.m. to really whenever, we're going to have a going away party for me and an engagement party. So my fiance is flying up all the way from San Diego to meet you all. I know we have the camp out, but um, we put it a little later in the day, so maybe some of you can show up later whenever. Um, so that's going to be next week. You're all invited. It's going to be here, 6 p.m. It's going to be a potluck, so bring something to eat or drink. Uh, we're going to just have fun, play some games. My parents are driving up too, so you can come meet them and uh, come say goodbye. Um, so I am moving back to San Diego, but all that means is that I'm just going to be flying here every week, um, every Sunday. The commute is long, and Allegiant has no legroom, but uh, persecution is part of the game. And I'm willing to endure that for you because I'm awesome. Um, no, but I, uh, I, I really, I wish... I wish dearly that this church was in San Diego, apart from it just being so sunny and beautiful out there, um, because I've really, I've yet to find anything like it. I've yet to find any message like this. I've yet to find a family um, like this. And we're not perfect. We're not flashy. Sometimes our microphones buzz and they zap. Um, but I've never heard the gospel like I have here. And the Lord has used all of you um, as just the best instruments in my life. And as I look around this room, I see families that have welcomed me with open arms, that have treated me like one of their own, that have made me more desserts than I've seen on the British baking show, <laughs> that have invited me to numerous Christmases and Thanksgivings, even if they forgot that I was there, <coughs> Susie Barbo. <coughs> Sorry, something in my throat. Um, you've taught me how to fire a gun and then how to put the safety on afterwards. You taught me how to uh, skin a deer after accidentally hitting it with a truck. That one's for the Rosendahls. Um, all jokes aside, all of you have treated me like family and have walked in this gospel with me in this immeasurable grace of God. And I'm forever grateful for all of you. And so as I look around this room and I see, oh, I'm getting emotional already. Um, as I see young adults that I've been privileged to lead in after hours or ministry, or I look at the high schoolers, um, 
Oh, gosh. Okay. <clears throat> As I look at the high schoolers, I just can't help but uh, think about all the musicians that have come up here and have, who are way better than I am and have played with me um, and have just worshipped the Lord together. I can't help but think that the thing that I will miss most about Bellingham uh, is the coffee. <clears throat> the coffee, it's so good. It's so delicious. It's so warm. No, um, I will always hold this place near and dear in my heart. Um, so from the bottom of that heart, I wanted to thank all of you and tell you all that I, I love you a lot and I will miss you guys dearly. Um, and so I thought it would be a fitting goodbye or a fitting farewell sermon uh, to walk with you or walk through with you the passage of scripture that for lack of better words, flipped my entire view of the gospel and of Christ upside down. Um, So if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians 1. So we'll be in Ephesians 1. And we're also going to reference Romans 10 in the end. So you can either choose to flip there now or later. I'll remind you later. Um, But Ephesians 1 is where we'll be for the majority of this time. Uh, But before we read through it, would you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to worship you, Lord, that you allow us to study your word. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you are good, so abundantly good to us, um, far beyond what we can ever deserve or imagine. So, Lord, I pray that as we just study your word through Ephesians today, Lord, that we would just be enriched with these amazing words from Paul. Um, and, Lord, that we would just realize our freedom that we have in you, God. You're amazing. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to read through the intro first, talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to read through 3 through 14 together. So Ephesians 1, verse 1 through verse 2. And I'll also have it up on the, on the screen as well. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel like oftentimes we skip over intros of passages, um, but just right off the bat, I, wanna, I want us to realize the brevity of that first verse up there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I mean, do you realize who this guy is, who Paul is? This guy that is speaking peace to these people that is about to deliver perhaps one of the greatest messages of all time, the guy who would speak peace and grace to people once persecuted the very people that he's speaking to, and not with a slap on the wrist or a strong word, but with actual murder. When I taught this uh, book with our young adult ministry about three years ago, we spent the first couple of weeks studying the life of Paul, and, and for good reason. Because I think in order to see the immense depth of Ephesians, and especially this first chapter, uh, you need to know who's writing it. Paul the Apostle, as many of you know, in his own words in in Philippians 3, described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, that's quite a statement. And by the way, that part of persecuting the church that Paul's talking about here meant killing people. In Acts 7, Paul approves of the murder, the stoning of Stephen. In in chapter 8, of Acts, It talks about how he entered the houses of people and dragged men and women and committed them to prison. And in chapter 9 of Acts, it says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then later on, as we know, in the road to Damascus, he gets blindsided by Jesus, right? Knocks him off of his horse. 
And that's when Jesus says to him, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And that day, Paul became a believer of the way, as it was described. The very message that he was trying to snuff out, right? The very message he was killing people for, he became a believer of. And it's easy for us to look at a story like Paul's and say, and from then on, Paul was a better person. Or I'm learning through Paul's testimony that I can, you know, really make my life better if I just acted like Paul. But in Paul's words again, post-salvation in Romans, he says, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. So after being the persecutor of the church, God knocks him off of his horse. He becomes a believer. He then goes on to describe himself in Romans as the chief of sinners, present tense, not past tense. He didn't say, I was the chief of sinners before. He says, I am the chief of sinners. So this broken sinner, Paul, is about to tell us one of the greatest messages of all times. And we can trust it. We can trust it because Paul is broken like you and me. And I don't think his message would be, here's how you can be a better person or here's how your works can make you righteous. I'm pretty sure the guy that would describe himself as the chief of sinners, his message would be to you, Jesus is your only righteousness. Jesus is everything. Jesus has done everything and he did it before the world even began. He took care of you. So we can trust it because Paul is broken like you and me, but he's captured by the wonder of God's work. So we're going to spend the majority of our time here in verses 3 through 14. But before we read it, um, I wanted to show you something really cool that I learned in Dax University, as I call it, where tuition, you just give 10% every month of your tithing. And uh, no, I'm just joking. Um, But Dax showed me this, and it's really awesome. Verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek are actually one sentence. It's one sentence, but when we translated it to English, we we split it up into multiple sentences. And I think there was a reason why it was all one sentence. It's because it's all one continuous thought. So I thought it would be really fun to read verses 3 through 14 as if it were one sentence. And so I'm going to read that for you right now, and I dare you to follow along with me in verses 3 through 14. I'm going to read fast. I might run out of breath. I might die. But if I do, just remember that Jesus loves you, and, and we'll call it good. Uh, But don't worry, we're going to break this down verse by verse. But for now, follow along with me, verses 3 through 14. And this is declarative truth for you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to... His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed at the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, wow. I don't know why you're clapping for me. That's really funny. (laughs) What an amazing truth. One sentence, 
all declarative truth for you. So don't worry, we're going to break that down verse by verse. So all the way back up to verse 3 through 4. Let's read that again. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So right off the bat, Paul wants us to know, in the greatest sentence of all time, before the foundations of the world, before we even had a thought, God took care of us. Before you even knew about your problems, or could even know what the word problem meant, God took care of it. He made us holy, he made us blameless, i.e. righteous and sanctified. And so I ask you, and this is going to be a common question that I ask about this whole thing, and I'd love, I teach for high school and I'd love to have them respond back. So I'm going to ask you, what did we do to earn that? And your answer would be nothing. Amen. I like it. That was great. Thanks, Trey. I paid him before. Um, we did nothing to earn this. It doesn't say, you know, we did A, so we received B. It says that nowhere. We weren't even born yet, and God has already taken care of us. Amazing. Verse 5 through 6, he continues, and he says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love that. Notice how in the first line it says, in love. Not in obligation or on the fly did God do this because he was fixing a mess. No, in love, he predestined us for adoption. I love that word, adoption. Adoption is an amazing thing. It actually runs in my family. My sister's adopted. She has adopted a little girl, and my sister-in-law is also adopted. Uh, One of my best friends, Trey, is adopted. I I look around this room. There's a lot of adopted people in this room. It's an awesome, awesome thing that we can do as humans, one of the coolest things that we can do. And the beauty of adoption is a family choosing to make an orphan a son or a daughter. Someone in a state of having no home, nothing of any financial value to give to the family, giving that person a family. And it's beautiful. But back in these days, when Paul was writing this, adoption meant that they also got your inheritance. So when you went and you adopted somebody, you were essentially giving them what you've worked for your whole life. You're giving them your future and your inheritance. You are literally giving them everything. And in return, they had nothing of value to give to you. You were just doing it. You were just adopting them. And so when Paul declares us adopted to God, it means that we had nothing of value or worth, yet we received everything. So we receive everything from this God who is abundantly gracious. And again, I ask you, what did you do to earn it? Nothing. And I think it's time for us to start getting used to that answer and actually finding joy in that answer. We find joy in saying, we bring nothing. I have nothing in my hands, I bring, right? But Jesus, who had everything, died on that cross for us and gave us everything. Because as soon as we put responsibility in our hands, and our flesh is so prone to do that, as soon as we put responsibility in in our hands for salvation or for holiness, that's the moment that we actually welcome anxiety, depression, anger, pride, segregation. Why? Why is that? Because we fail to do it. We fail to be righteous. We fail to be holy. We don't meet the standard of God's holiness or worthiness. 
Why? Because we're broken sinners. We fail the simplest command from God every single day. We fail it. So is the goal for our lives to try our best and try our hardest and ultimately fail all the time? Because James says if you fail one law out of the 611 laws in the Old Testament, if you fail once, you fail the entire thing. He wasn't being metaphorical. He was being literal. If you fail once, you fail the entire thing. So is our goal to think that we can do that? We can do all 611 and that the standard is achievable and frankly ignore our failure? (laughs) Or is our purpose and what gives us joy to come to a place that says, I am nothing and he is everything. I did nothing, yet Christ did everything. It's what we call a high view of law here. I know a lot of you have probably heard that term, but a high view of law says it's the law is this thing that we look at and we say, we can't do that. We can't attain it. We can't do this to the full extent because it's not just doing some of the law. I'm working on my humbleness this week. I'm getting really good at it. You know, it's not that. The law is unattainable. We look at that and we say that's an impossible standard. But then with that, we pair it with what we call a high view of gospel, which says, but Jesus did it. Jesus actually did it. And what it meant that he did it and died for my sins is he made me righteous. He made me righteous. A high view of gospel, which we have, which I hope you have, is what gives us rest and it places trust in the finished work of Christ, which was, by the way, as Paul describes here, planned before the world was formed. Awesome. So Paul, in the beginning of this letter, is painting right away, this is God's plan. It wasn't on the fly. This was God's plan. I feel like oftentimes people take this verse and they just want to use it as a way to argue, you know, predestination versus free will. You know, I went to a college where a lot of these arguments took place. And uh, I'm just sitting here now in this church and I'm like, that, like, that's an awesome discussion to have, but the adoption piece is so cool. <laughs> like, God before the foundations of the world decided he wanted to adopt you and give you everything fully knowing that you would continue to sin, fully knowing that you would continue to spit in his face, still loved you and did that for you. So we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing and adopted both those things unearned. So let's continue in verse 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and we'll stop there. I know I want to get to verse 9 too, but we'll, we'll hit that in a second. So in him we have redemption. Look really close with me. This is really hard to translate. We have redemption, right? We have it. Not we have the tool to get redemption or now we have the motivation to live redeemed. No, it's saying declarative statement. You have redemption. You have it right now. But we interpret stuff the other way, don't we? We oftentimes interpret it as, oh, oh, there's my works piece. There's where I have to put myself and I have to get skin in the game, right? We're not okay with sitting the bench and watching Jesus win the game for us. We're not okay with enjoying the victory that we didn't earn. We want to right the mistakes that we made in the game and and prove that we're better than them. We want to know that we can work our way into belonging into God's presence or showing him that, yeah, sure, we didn't deserve it but before salvation, but once I get to heaven, I'll be able to show God my life and then we'll agree that I belong there. <laughs> no. 
I think this is because we're addicted to redemption stories, aren't we? It's in Hollywood. It's all over the movies. We're addicted to, to for some reason, seeing someone as a moral example for us to follow, to show our, to prove our worthiness before God. I'm a, I'm a huge baseball fan. Love baseball. Go Padres, which is a really unfortunate statement, but it's not as unfortunate as saying you're a Mariners fan. Um, <clears throat> huge Padres fan, which means my greatest arch enemy are the Dodgers. Hate the Dodgers. And you say, well, you can't hate because it's murder. I know. I know what it is. I hate the Dodgers. But the Dodgers were playing the Astros in the 2017 World Series. Okay, and this is the two best teams at the time, as much as I hate to say that. Two best teams at the time, and it is an awesome series to watch. I mean, every game is back and forth, back and forth. So many home runs in that series, it was ridiculous. But in Game 5, one of the most crucial games, because they play out of seven. Game 5, the series is tied 2-2. to So now they're playing a Game 5, a crucial game in Houston. The Astros are winning by, I think it was one run. And the Dodgers are up to bat, and their MVP, Cody Bellinger, comes up to bat. Runner on second base. He hits a line drive to dead center field. And the center fielder, George Springer, has, has the chance to either play it in front of him, play it safe. Maybe the run doesn't score. Maybe it does, but it's just a tied game. Or he can dive headfirst for the ball and risk the ball going behind him so he can either dive, make an amazing catch, and go down as one of the greatest catches of all time, or he can miss it and it can go down as one of the greatest blunders of all time. Well, he does the latter. He dives, not even close to the ball, Ball passes him, goes all the way to the fence, runs scores, ties the game. Cody Bellinger gets the third base. Dodgers score again in the inning. Astros lose the lead. Huge disappointment for me. Next inning, next half inning, George Springer comes up. Same guy that missed the ball. First pitch, hits it 450 feet out of the stadium. Crushes the ball. First pitch, I'm, I stand up, I'm elated, I'm screaming at the TV, in your face, Dodgers, in your face, Dodgers, texting all my Dodger friends, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Astros would go on to win that game. Dodgers win, win the next game, so it's tied again. And in game seven, George Springer would hit a three-run homer that would seal the deal. Astros win the World Series. Awesome redemption story, right? Eh. Last year, it was discovered that the Astros had been cheating for the last three years, four years, five years by sticking a video camera in center field. And the guy would zoom in on the catcher and their signs. And they would relay the signs to the Astros dugout. And the Astros dugout would bang a trash can, literally. There's footage of it. Bang a trash can so the hitter would know a fastball's coming. So George Springer knew a fastball was coming on that pitch that he hit 450 feet. And as much as I hate the Dodgers, I had to admit the Astros cheated. And they didn't take away their trophy or anything. But they had been cheating. George Springer got traded away to the Blue Jays. And to this day, every Astros player, but especially George Springer, is booed by fans all over the world. What about Lance Armstrong? Live strong. Awesome athlete. Had cancer. Won the Tour de France. This awesome thing. Would go to children's hospitals. Kids are struggling with leukemia. Looked like this awesome role model. I always do that ant thing because Dax does it. I think it's really fun. I'm like, I want to do that. <clears throat> Comes out later that he's been taking performance-enhancing drugs, right? That his great feat was still a great feat, but it was helped by cheating. 
It's discovered that he was threatening reporters that if you report on me cheating, I will ruin your reputation. It's discovered that those visits at the hospital were saving face for him so that he would look like this great guy. Those stories, they bug us because we want those to be real redemption stories. We want to know that there's a moral example out there that we can strive to be like. I just taught a series with the high school called Flawed Heroes, where we'd walk through various heroes in the Bible, right? Well, yeah, I heard this song the other day. It was, you know, I want a heart like David. I want faith like Abraham. Really? <laughs> David, yeah, killed Goliath. That's awesome. Led a nation. That's awesome. Had his own private group of Avengers called the Mighty Men of David. That's pretty sick. Wrote Psalms, some of which we sing today. And oh, yeah, Bathsheba. Yikes. And you say, well, no, he repented after Bathsheba. He became a better person after Bathsheba. His redemption story starts there. Uh-uh. The census that he took, counting the soldiers. Look at my army, how awesome I am. What about Abraham? Right? There's one, father of faith, Abraham. He's a great redemption story. Father Abraham had many sons, and then he lied about his wife being his sister. <laughs> right? That's not how the song goes. What's the similarity in all those stories? Is it these were awesome guys who showed you how cool they were and we want all of our people to represent who they are? No. The commonality in all those stories is God is the hero behind the scenes the entire time. God is the redeemer. He's always been the hero and he uses broken sinful people like you and me, like Abraham, like David to show his glory. He is the redeemer, not you. The only way to be redeemed is by Jesus coming to earth to complete the law that we can't do in perfection, to literally be our entire substitute on that cross and then to make us alive by his resurrection. He forgave our sins. He removed our shame completely. So redemption doesn't mean that you become better. It means your entire identity has changed. Oh, and by the way, it was planned before the world even began. Your identity has fully changed from lost to found, from dead to alive, from guilty to righteous. It's a declarative statement. You have redemption fully. You are redeemed. You're not in the process of it. I mean, look at the continuation in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What is the redemption? It's the forgiveness of our sins. Who did that? Jesus, what did you do to earn it? Nothing. 8 through 12. 8 through 10, I'm sorry. Let's read that together. So, according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Oh, preach, Paul. That's a mic drop moment, isn't it? I love this. We are lavished in grace, the term lavished is this is meant to be like this outpouring, like it's just dumped on you. When I was a kid, we used to go to Knott's Berry Farm in California, and there was this massive log ride. And at the end of the drop of this log ride, there was a they put this like bridge that you could walk on. And so you'd walk and you'd look at this log ride, and it would hit the water, and the water would just dump over you, right? Because as an eight-year-old, you don't care about running around wet all the time. And uh, I remember we would just stand there and it would just be this like tidal wave. And I just imagine like that's what it means here, that you've been lavished in grace, that you couldn't escape it. You couldn't run from it. He couldn't just give you a sprinkle of grace and then say, go earn the rest of it. No, he lavished it on you. 
lavished in grace by a God with full wisdom and insight, meaning he fully knows us, fully knows us, knows us better than we know ourselves. And in Romans 9, it talks about how the Spirit is praying for us for needs we don't even know we have. God fully knows us and he's fully covered us. And that's crazy because I think one of our biggest fears in relationships is being completely transparent. Why? Because we're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of being orphaned. We're afraid of being alone. But this is the beauty of adoption that Paul mentioned. Adoption into the family of God means a father who knows the worst things about you and then some, the things you don't even know, that father chose to lavish his grace on you. Oh, and he gave up his, his perfect son to do it. And again, he didn't do this on the fly, out of obligation, but had it planned to unite all things in heaven and earth. And he planned it before the earth was formed. See, we worship a planned, faithful God who's proven himself trustworthy. He doesn't operate on the basis of, if you're good, I'll be good to you. He's unbelievably good. His love is not conditional, and neither is his blessing. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's redeemed us, lavished grace on us, and now, because we're adopted in him, we've obtained an inheritance. And again I ask you, what did we do to earn that? Nothing. So in Christ, because of what he did, we obtained an inheritance. We, we place our hope, we're the first to hope, we place our hope in Christ, and he came through. I hear this idea of, of hope being thrown around as a, you know, I hope God moves here. Or, um, you know, don't lose hope, God will come through for you. And that's true, and he can. God comes through medically for people, he comes through financially for people, and getting people jobs, and, and he does that. But the hope that Paul is talking about here is an eternal one. And Paul is saying it's sealed. It's been answered. Your greatest concern in life has been answered. And it was answered before you were concerned about it. He's already completed it for you. Paul also mentions hope in Romans. And says hope is in things that you can't see. Not in things you do see. Meaning our hope rests in this amazing mystery that God has adopted us. And I think... This is why this idea of hoping in what we can't see, I think this is why our flesh and our self-righteousness fights our spirits so much. Because we hate the unknown. We're terrified of the unknown. My biggest fear is being stranded in the middle of the ocean because I have no idea what's underneath me. And also I've seen Jaws too much, right? Growing up, I was, I was scared of the dark. Why? Because I can't see anything around me. So when I hear this, that our hope in Romans is in the, in the face of utter darkness and brokenness that I actually can see, when I hear that my hope in, in that scenario is in the unseen, that's really hard for me to grasp. I, I don't like it. I fight it. But then I read Ephesians 1, and I see that God with full wisdom and insight, meaning a God who does see everything and knows everything, lavished his grace on me in spite of who I was and who I am. 
when I'm told that Jesus is your identity and what that means isn't Jesus is your moral example of which to follow, but it means Jesus actually is your identity now. He is your substitute on that cross. He is who God looks at when he looks at you. When I hear that, and I know I'm pretty bad, really bad, but then I realize I don't even know how bad I am. And in that place, God saved me and lavished grace on me. I get chills. (laughs) I actually experience peace. I'm not working on experiencing peace. I'm experiencing peace. Isn't that a crazy thought? You have peace even when you don't feel it. Our assurance is out of our hands. It's in God's hands and he assured it. But we want to work so hard on our works because we want to see the assurance. But in that place, God saved us. And even now we share with Paul's mindset of saying, man, I'm the the chief of sinners. Knowing God is still pleased with us. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see a redemptive story, but he sees Christ. He sees the Redeemer. Friends, you can't get more of God's love. You have 100% of it. And he'll always be fully pleased with you because when he looks at you, he'll always see his son. I heard it this way. I love this quote. To think God can be disappointed in you is to think God can be disappointed in Jesus. Because when you believe in Christ, he's your identity your redemption. Our hope is in the immeasurable goodness of Christ, a goodness so deep we don't even know how deep it goes. That's where our hope is. We don't even have the capacity to see how deep it goes. That is amazing. Verse 13 through 14. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When you heard the good news, good news, gospel means good news. When you heard that and you believed it, you were sealed with the Spirit stamped. Part of God's family, I say this to high schoolers, and ain't no one going to mess with God's family. You were sealed with the Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. When was it promised? When did God have this plan in place? Before the foundations of the world. Our inheritance is already guaranteed. There's nothing more you can do to earn it by stacking chairs here, even though we'd love help. Just kidding. (laughs) Our inheritance is guaranteed, and there's nothing you can do to escape it. I am. I'm teaching through Genesis with the high school, and it's been so cool seeing Genesis through this lens of the gospel, really every book in the Bible. Um, But in chapter 1, when God created, you know, the earth and the heavens and all this kind of stuff, he described it as good. And it even says that he described the trees as good, right? And you wonder, like, what does a good tree look like? Right, I've been to Yosemite. I've seen some of those redwoods. Awesome. Been here, obviously. I mean, anywhere you go, you see a tree. And we see some pretty beautiful things, but... uh, Since the fall in Genesis, since sin entered the world, the earth has been stained and it describes us being in labor. It's in labor pains, right? So none of us in this room have actually seen a tree the way that God intended it. Isn't that crazy? The most beautiful things you've seen in this world aren't the way that God intended them to be. So when he describes something as good, it's actually unimaginable. It's unimaginably good. So the gospel being described as good news It's unimaginably good. 
It's not hinging on the weight of how good you are compared to how bad you are, things you can see. It's, it's an unseen mystery, the gospel is. That's how good it is. It's so good you can't even comprehend how good it is. Man, place your rest in that, right? It's sealed. Okay, now we'll go to Romans 10. If you have a Bible, flip there. I don't have it on the screen, so. Romans 10, 9 through 13. I'll give you a little bit of time here. Romans 10, 9 through 13, and it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Justified and saved are one and the same. By believing, you are proclaiming that Jesus is everything and is our only righteousness. And not only does that remove guilt and eternal damnation, which is, by the way, the home that we deserve fully, not only does that mean that Jesus takes on your sin, your death, your punishment, and the full wrath of God, but he also took away your shame. He took away your shame. That is what the term living in victory actually means. You know what I love about the word victory? It's final. It's not a process. It's done. It's a done deal. Christ won. War is over. We talk all the time about, oh, I'm battling this thing, or I'm battling this thing. The war is over. It's over. Christ won it. Rest in that victory. Life is not about sin overcoming. It's about realizing it's already been overcome. Christ did it. I love the term that Dax used, the, uh, the soccer game analogy. You know, we're like playing soccer or something, and uh, we're like still in the locker room. God goes out. Jesus goes out, wins the game for us. It's over. We can rejoice, but we go out and we just want to show people how good we are at dribbling, Right? but look how humble I'm being this week. He's done it. When you realize it's done and you live in that finished victory, that is what turns mourning to dancing. All those Psalms that we read, when Paul says rejoice, it's not a command from Paul, go force yourself to rejoice. No, he's saying you have reason to. You're in victory. So friends, family, Grace Church Bellingham, my home for the last five years, this is where we stay. This is where we rejoice in the finished work of Christ. I had my last night with the high schoolers last Wednesday, um, and it was one of our seniors last nights as well. And so we had him, you know, come up. He actually wore Jeff's old graduation gown. It's kind of funny. We kind of celebrate them that way. And we only have one senior graduating. Um, well, one senior, not the other seniors didn't graduate yet. <laughs> um, but we have one senior graduating, and, uh, you know, we had him, we put him on the spot, you know, gave him the gown, and we we're all like yelling, speech, speech, speech. And he just kind of says, like, oh, you know, I've loved my time here, whatever, the cheesy stuff. And I asked him, like, hey, you know, what, what's your favorite memory of coming to the high school group? And um, <laughs> he says, hearing the same message every week. And he was kind of like joking, right? And everyone laughed. And so 
because he embarrassed me, and I'm a lot of times like an eight-year-old, I wanted to embarrass him back. Uh, so I asked him, well, what is that message every week, Drew? Oh, shoot. <laughs> I didn't mean to say his name. What is that message, Drew Kretzinger? Sorry. <laughs> um, to put him on the spot. And he kind of like, you know, took like five seconds. And he says, Jesus forgives you. And, uh, amen. <laughs> if those three words are said every Sunday, if I hear every Sunday, you are saved in Christ. If you believe and trust in Jesus, your whole eternity has been sealed before the foundations of the world even began. I.e., you have nothing to worry about. God won. You are saved. You're sealed. You're adopted. You have the inheritance. Live in victory. If I heard that every week, Jesus forgives you. I'd come to that church, even if the worship team only played the triangle or some didgeridoo thing, right? Church, you are loved beyond comprehension. If you believe and receive this gift of God, right? The word gift means he gave it to you. You are sealed. And this massive one sentence in Ephesians is not just an opinion about you, it's your reality. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray.